You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com because good causes deserve better results. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. Just to be clear, you are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to extract from our guests the practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This is a recording of a live Zoom call, and you can join these calls usually on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. You can find out all the details and register at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Listeners will know that when the conversation turns to mission and impact, I'll always recommend a clear, tightly worded impact statement. My guest today, Anna Bruni Sabani, would agree, but she's really looking at a deeper, more strategic problem around alignment and clarity. A formal civil engineer, Anna has turned her eye for precision to the nonprofit sector, and we're all the better for it. Have a listen to us working through what impact and clarity means for nonprofits as we, hopefully, start to emerge from the COVID lockdowns and turn our eyes to the future. Okay, welcome everyone to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is episode 25, and I have as my guest, Anna Bruni Sabini. And I hope I'm pretty sure I said that correctly. Great. <laughs> but you can correct me if I, if I didn't. Um, and so we are talking about muddled missions, difficult storytelling, um, a bit of uh, uh, mission dilution, that sort of thing. And everybody who knows me will know that uh, my sort of immediate answer is. Uh, uh, when it comes to a uh, confused or vague mission is to craft a, an impact statement. And that gets you a nice terse set of words. But I think, Anna, we're going to talk about something a bit deeper and broader across the organization, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So do you want to uh, give us an introduction and tell us a bit about your background and where people can find you online and and then we'll get into it? Yeah, sure. So, um I am Anna Bruni Sapani. Um, I've got a, an organization called the Confluencers. So my sole mission and purpose and objective in life at the moment and for the foreseeable future uh, is to basically help nonprofits solve a specific problem. Uh, I didn't quite start this way. So I actually started in um, many, 12 years ago in civil engineering. And that's sort of where for the first time I came across this really frustrating experience I'm sure a lot of you here or listening on replay will have gone through of basically pitching something that you're really excited about. I still remember it. it was I think I just finished I had just graduated and I was pitching one of my first projects to a client I was sitting around this room with lots of board members uh, and I was so excited and it was about flooding and I was just so excited to share it with these people and the reaction I got was just they just were not interested. Just blank stares. Uh, they, huh? were, 
they were just blank. Like they, they were interested in other parts of the project. They were excited about the aquarium. They were excited about the hotel, the landscape. But my part, which was, look, I've managed to keep all these people safe from flooding. Isn't this awesome? Was just not sticking. And so that led to many similar experiences um, where I just, I kept on coming across this thing of, again, like stakeholders not wanting the same thing and pretending to agree and trying to work together and spending money trying to do projects together, but just not getting it right. And the cost of that being quite frustrating, being people strained and uh, money being wasted and nobody was really happy with the outcomes of the projects. Um, so that basically is what led me to, to, to start the Confluencers. That and a figure that uh, I found a while back, uh, which was that only 0.2% of international funding and aid and philanthropy goes to local or national organizations. So that means 99.8% is not managed by organizations that are closest to the problem. So those two experiences really hit me. And I felt like that's not a system that, that is good enough. So clarity around the problem is partly stemmed from, partly stems from uh, people being around the table, as it were, under, a, under the common roof or being in the same committee and part of the same group, but coming from uh, such, such diverse uh, expectations and values that, they, that even if they nominally agree, it's not sufficiently genuine to solve the problem. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you've hit on now, that, that point, like the expectations and the values, I think that's, that's a, really, a really important point, which, which we sometimes sort of brush over because it's, it's harder to pick out. Like somebody's expectations, somebody's belief systems, they're a bit less easy to talk about necessarily than like, what are you going to do today? Like what activities are you going to deliver? Yeah, I think there's sort of a, there's sort of a, a, a presumption that if someone comes forward as a donor, as a volunteer, or indeed a board member for a nonprofit, that they have accepted the values or that the values resonate with them, or there's something that connects them. Uh, but I think what you're saying is that even if you get a dozen people who raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm here to put in some work, actually, the work's not quite, you know, they're not quite ready to do that work as a group, as a unit, because they can work at cross purposes. Yeah. And that, like, that's a great start. Like, you, you, need, you need board members, you need people to buy into it. But that's the start. That's not, that's not good enough to drive complex long-term change. That's not good enough. That's not going to help you, that's not going to be enough of a strong relationship and of a common understanding of what it is that you're doing to be able to get you through like all those tough things that happen. Like what happens when your funding gets cut? What happens when you're all of a sudden you've got double the beneficiaries to help than you thought you had, or you come across some unexpected risks like COVID, like to, to get through those hurdles that all nonprofits will face that initial interest of yeah okay let's let's do this we've got a mission statement and a vision great uh it's <laughs> not going to be enough because chances are that somebody in that board and i've seen this a lot actually even with the organizations i work with uh, and i say this very endearingly because i've been a trustee as well uh, but you'll have different people even within the board that have completely different activities and parts of the nonprofits work that they are most passionate about 
And so even within the organization, it can be tricky to agree. Uh, okay, well, what is actually our priority this year? What's our mission this year? What's our impact this year? How are we going to measure success this year? Yeah. And then when you get funders externally involved, it gets even more complicated. Yeah. And again, I, I find I've got an immediate response, which is this notion of an impact statement. And uh, I often hear from executive directors who work to to put together an impact statement and they come back and say, my, my board's never had such clarity. It's it's really, they finally understand what we do. But, but that is admittedly a sort of short-term uh, immediate response. You're talking, I think, uh, more strategically about how they really understand the next year, the next three years, uh, rather than, you know, next week. So, what would what would you say the entry point is for understanding this problem in a given nonprofit? Is it is it fair to presume that a board of directors is suffering from some form of misalignment and it needs correcting, or uh, where, how do you sort of approach the problem or identify it? I yeah, so a few thoughts come to mind. One is if you've hit on something I think which is really important, which is worth just spending a few seconds on, and it's the fact that. In, in that theory of change that a nonprofit has, there is not just one destination, there's many. Uh, because impact isn't always that simple. It's not like you just work on education in isolation. Chances are you're mm -hmm. working on education, but that has an impact on livelihoods. It might have an impact on women empowerment. It might have an impact on youth employment. Like you don't, everything's connected. And so I yeah. think no matter what type of work you're doing, but especially if you are not a nonprofit, leader that's working in an organization that is after that systemic change. Um, it's, not, it's not always one thing, it's many. And so I think we don't have to choose. Like that impact statement is a great start. That could be like yeah. the medium term vision maybe. But then what I love to split it down into is when, if, you have a, if you have a systems map, if you, have a, if you get that impact idea out of people's heads and onto a piece of paper where you put it all together and you map out all the interrelations between the processes that you're trying to affect, then you can very easily say, okay, well, actually, this is this part here of the system is our short-term goal. This is year one. But then after three years, say, we want to actually get into like, we're shifting awareness or we're influencing policymakers or we're reaching a different stakeholder group. And so it's fine. It's like you have to choose between them. You just have to have that conversation and create order among them so that uh, you can all agree on what's going to be done first and how everything sort of fits together. Yeah, the sequencing. So it sounds like what a lot of uh, consultants and coaches I know would, would call strategic planning. And interestingly, in the last 12 months, strategic planning exercises have either been abandoned or, or reconstructed or reformed as more sort of business continuity. Um, what, what, how would you... Uh, support or or recommend people sort of understand this broader issue within 2021 and 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 the the sort of difficulty it is for us to see beyond uh, a few months ahead. I think I mean I I fully accept that it's a it's a challenge. Like any time that the world <laughs> or that an organization or that a region is hit by really really unexpected events like COVID that we just weren't prepared for. Um, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of costs, there's a lot of difficult decisions um, to be made like staff and cash flow. But I think my general feeling is 
it's not planning strategic planning and reaching this level of clarity that I'm talking about around your mission and your vision. It's not something that should just happen in a crisis. It's, it's your long-term resilience strategy because you're always going to be exposed to risks. Right. Um, and the, and so it's, I wouldn't say it's something that we have to do now. I think it's something that actually is at the foundation of if an organization wants to be able to weather the, the times and, um, have the long-term mentality that you need to solve some of these really, because these are really ingrained issues that nonprofits solve. I mean, hats off. They're like, like you, you guys are the, are the really the, the, the hope of all society, because frankly, like without you, there's no, there's no other part of society that's so fully focused on making the world a better place. And there's so many problems that are hard to solve. Um, so I think it's something that has to be done consistently. I think what can be done now is, is, well, three things that I actually, I always come back to. One is getting to know your audience and your funders and unplugging those uh, misunderstandings and those biases so that you can relate to them better. Uh, it's not good enough to assume this is what a funder thinks. You want to hear it from them. You want to really let nothing buy you. Um, I hear quite a lot, nonprofits tell me, oh, you know, these funders like short-term funding or these funders like long-term funding or these funders don't like yeah people make assumptions assumptions yeah. exactly and they're assumptions so you can't build your whole strategy you can't put all your eggs in one basket just based on an assumption so in order to plan ahead you need to understand who you're talking to what is their understanding of your problem and of your mission and impact and what gaps of information do you have to fill then you need that impact narrative and then you need rules of engagement, which goes back to what you talk about a lot, Kev, time. How do you make effective decisions mm -hmm. based on a framework of prioritization so that every time you hit a new block, you don't have to go back from scratch. Like a funder pulls out or you've got 20 applications and you've only got time to do one. How do you choose? Right. How do you decide where to put your efforts? Ideally, you want to have those rules set aside before so that you can focus on executing instead of rethinking the strategy all the time. Because otherwise, the risk is we end up making short-term decisions and the cost of that is huge. Yeah, you, if you're rethinking all the time, it's, it's exhausting. You, you know, it just, it, it's, it's so, it, it displaces uh, all the time and energy you have for anything else. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, mission dilution. I know uh, we, we spoke about this uh, beforehand uh, and how it's sort of common, not just to the nonprofit sector, uh, but you identified a couple of cycles. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and then maybe we maybe uh, think about how that applies now and what people are are trying to manage. Because again, it is a, we're in a period of uncertainty and we're not doing the strategic planning or even if we did the strategic planning, we're sort of putting that to one side because we're just trying to make sure we've got our doors open and that we're, we're meeting our needs and we're, we're, we're managing however we are managing now. So uh, I'd be interested to, to first hear about uh, mission dilution and this cycle and then how it applies to where people are now and what they can do about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is one of the things I'm most, um, most interested in actually that I've been observing the most. So, so, so what I've seen, and I, I don't know if any of you listening can relate, but that Typically, a nonprofit, when, when you start, you start with a very clear, vivid mission or need. Like, I don't know about you, Kev, about the people you work with, but usually, to me, it usually comes from like a personal experience or like somebody has a need all of a sudden to, to serve a certain cause. 
And so at that moment, that a massive spark of passion. Yeah, spark of passion. Like it just comes to you and you're like, I have to do this. And it could just be a volunteer project. It could just be whatever it is. But you start with that clarity and that desire to change. And that's very clear. But then what I see happen is obviously over time, you, you maybe get a little bit of traction. You start building a proof of concept. You see, oh my God, my, my interventions are making a difference. This is making change. This is amazing. I want to do more of it. So you start reaching out to the world and say, okay, actually, we need external support. You might reach out to your family or you might reach out to um, uh, funders that you know. And you get a little bit of funding. And that sort of puts wind under your sails and you start delivering projects on the ground. Now, as that grows, as you get, as you start scaling your initial proof of concept, it makes you, it empowers your organization, but it also makes you vulnerable to liabilities because all of a sudden you've got cash flow challenges. You might have staff. You made promises to people on the ground that you need to keep. Um, and so then at some point, somewhere around the road, those typical risks, bumps will happen. They happen to everybody across sectors. We can't get it's away It's generic from. startup stuff, It'll right? It'll just happen, right? You will you yeah. hit a high, high wave and then all of a sudden you'll crash down. And you'll be like, oh my God, I don't have funding. Oh my God, I don't know where to go to vote for my next funder. Those are the moments that are the hardest. And I think that's, those are the moments that we're in now more often. And they're hardest because every organization needs to choose, do I make a short-term decision to fix what I need urgently now, or do I try to hold back and make a long-term decision? So for example, you might say, you know, a funder comes to you and says, hey, uh, want this funding? Like have this funding. I'll give you this funding. I love you. I trust you. Here it is. But you got to deliver me X number of schools. And schools might not be your thing. You might be into helping I don't, uh, children uh, get adopted. So maybe the children are in school, so it's sort of linked, but it's not really your thing. It's not really your mission. It's not really why you wanted to do the work. And it's not really what your particular beneficiaries need. And you know that. But you've got staff to pay. You know you could do some good for children by doing the schools. And so at some point you decide. And so what I see happen is that it's it, with all the pressures of staff, of uncertainty, of really wanting to hold on, it's normal for organization leaders sometimes to say, well, you know what, this is better than nothing. Yeah. Right. And the problem is it's not doing making that decision once. Yeah. It's that once you do it once, and everybody's sort of aware of this part of the cycle, I think. It's pretty, it's, it's part of the nonprofit world. But I think what we don't realize is that the feedback loop, because if you do that decision consecutively over time, it starts eating into your long-term potential. Well, I think it can even, I think it can even uh, start really from the beginning, depending on how removed that additional program <laughs> is from what you believe your core impact is. And this was this was my problem really with mission statements is there's lots and lots of programming that can fit under any given mission statement. So if a funder in that example that you give says, hey, do you want to do this, which is sort of what you're already doing, but you know, we'd really like you to, to uh, set up this sort of program. The way most missions are written, it doesn't seem like a conflict because it's because their missions are so broad and so and because the, the the purpose of a mission statement is often to inspire and set aspirations and create ambitions for the organization uh, that bring people to your cause, but they're not very good at at this thing we're talking about, which is decision making. Um, and and I think COVID has has rendered mission statements relatively 
useless at, 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 at helping you steer between options. Do we do this or this or the other thing? They're all consistent with the mission. So the mission's actually out of the picture from when it comes to a decision-making perspective. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's exactly my point. That's exactly the, that, that, that feedback loop that happens. You make that decision once, you make it twice, you make it three times. All of a sudden, started off as an organization with a pretty clear mission, say a vision of, I want all kids to be adopted. And then your mission is, I'm going to do this by, through uh, programs in this area that target supportive coaching. So it's quite specific. But then all of a sudden, you have to broaden that mission because all of a sudden you have to include the schools. Maybe next time around, you have to include an educational program or a teaching program or a teacher support program. And so that mission gets fatter and fatter and fatter. And then the problem with that is it doesn't just dilute, it doesn't just make it a bit confusing to make decisions. It's much worse than that. It makes you less, it, it, it dilutes your USP. Interestingly, though, a, a, a perhaps a commercially orientated or entrepreneurial board member might say uh, or advise the, the board or the executive director to, to respond positively to these funding opportunities because if that's what the market wants or that's what your, that's what your uh, funding partners are saying they want, then that's what we should be doing because they're, they're, they're sort of being market-led rather than mission-led. And, and I, think, I think that's a great point, and I, can, I know that happens all the time, and I think there's a great response to that. And I think it's actually that clarity, cl- having that specific clarity is actually the key because the first question you need to answer is who are you serving because if you're not clear on who you're serving exactly and what problem you're solving for them and this is with a business hat on sort of mm-hmm. um, your business will fail and so i get i get the i get the board member approach of saying you know we need to do what the, we need to respond to the market now the challenge that ngos face is it's a double-sided market on the one hand you have the beneficiaries that are the people that are your number one uh, person that will get your outcome. They're going to get the benefits of your work. But the person paying for it, the, cons- the customer, is actually the funder. So you've got a double-sided market. But I think what I, what I really am a big advocate for is I think the dial has gone too far the other way. Mm. And I think we can get really confused if we think that just doing what funders tell us is going to help our organizations because funders don't know. Like funders rely on nonprofits for the information about the problem. And the example I love to make is like, it's like there's a mountain and the mountain is reality and the nonprofit owns that mountain. They have a map of that mountain. They know it inside out, trees, lakes, all of it, right? The funder is sitting on the other side of a mountain at a, looking at a lake that reflects the mountain. The proposals, the information that as a nonprofit you send out into the world, it's like a fuzzy reflection of your mountain, right? Yeah. And the funder's on the other side of the lake. So he relies on nonprofits to say, actually, Mr. Funder, you know, I know you're really passionate about schools, but in this specific area, schools are not going to work because. And actually what we need is X, because. Because can you see how if we do this, we've tried this, but if we do this, this happens, this happens, this happens. And therefore, it doesn't work. So why don't we start with our orphan intervention? And then we move into maybe some elements that include you. So it's, it's a conversation. I'm not saying ignore funders completely. But as a starting point, a nonprofit should always put their beneficiaries, their mission, and their impact first. 
and then look at the outside world. And I think that will give clarity in all the decisions because that'll also help help you figure out which funders to go after. Because how do you find a funder if you don't know what interests the funder should be interested in? Yeah. And you want funders who support the impact you're trying to achieve in your mission rather than, I mean, we wouldn't really go to funders and say, hey, uh, we've got a we've got a nonprofit organization. Where where do you want to point it? What what outcomes do you want? Yeah, we'll we'll do that for money. Um, which is, you know, we, we it sounds crazy to even describe it that way, but in a sense, if you've got board members who say do what the funders are asking, that that's really how you're laying out. You're you're sort of a service organization for hire, um, broadly working within a, a field or a cause, and that's that's a sort of misconception of what uh, the most successful organizations are. They're very very specific, and they they not only recruit funders who who you know who are going to support the mission that they've already set for themselves with the impact, but actually. <laughs> They recruit board members and other large donors who also understand that too. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is one of the fundamental things that really surprised me when I moved from um, professional international consulting to the nonprofit space. And it's how, in some set settings, how little nonprofits' time and expertise is valued. And I just find that baffling because in every other sector, knowledge and consulting and information on problems is is valued so much right people pay i mean if you look at the mckinsey's the accentures all types of high professional consultants doctors dentists engineers right they are using their knowledge to create value in society and nonprofits are doing exactly the same and somehow in some settings they don't get to they don't get to at least i'm not saying reap loads of money or charge loads of fees but at least get enough fees and funding to be comfortable and to be able to maintain that knowledge and grow that knowledge and also have it respected and recognized in conversations because i really see i mean the social change problems that we need to solve they need both they benefit from both funders bring different perspectives they're typically businessmen, philanthropists, they have a different perspective to bring into it. They can bring effectiveness. They can bring maybe a different worldview. There's so much they can bring to the table. Uh, but knowledge of the problem, I don't think is necessarily always, and this is a generalization, their number one area of expertise. That's the nonprofit's area of expertise because they're on the ground solving the problem every day. Yeah, the programming. And it's not, you don't mean just the knowledge uh, around advocacy, for example, which um, is is a is a common nonprofit uh, area of expertise, and they they might be get asked about advocacy or uh, uh, some so, some specialist questions about their area, but not in the way that 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 you've described. Not in terms of problem solving as as it is. Yeah, and I think it's 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 interesting you say that because it's it's things that probably a lot of nonprofit leaders might not even recognize the scale of their own knowledge. Because a lot of it comes from experience. It's not like it's taught. Right. Right? Like every single second that somebody spends with um, a, a child in a school, every single second somebody spends observing how a teacher teaches, every single second somebody spends listening to somebody that's faced addiction, to their stories, they're, they're understanding the root causes of how that challenge came about. They're understanding what works and what doesn't. Um, I mean, just the other day I was, um, I'm working on a, for an organization that um, works on indigenous issues. And there's so many things about the knowledge that these people on the ground are accumulating about forests, about what grows, what doesn't, what's resilient to climate change, what's not. 
it's all in people's head. It's all hidden and nobody appreciates it. And it's not written down. It can't be, can't be leveraged. No. So I think that's the type of knowledge. It's experience and knowledge. It's knowledge about what works. It's knowledge about people's perceptions and beliefs. It's all things that actually, if you think about it, the business world values and spends tons of money on because that's what the marketing sector is about. It's about knowing your customer. And each big business spends so much money on knowing their customer because they know that if they understand their customers' problems, fears, desires, and needs, they will be able to come up with a product or a service that will serve them. And the nonprofits have that information. They're sitting on it. But yet sometimes they don't get the credit or the recognition for it. It's interesting. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, philanthropists, whether they're individual givers or, or the sort of institutional grant makers, uh, if you look at their websites, they refer to their impact uh, in the amount of money that they've given to particular areas. And I always found that as odd because it's like, well, okay, you're facilitating your grantees to make an impact, and that's great. I mean, the money, the money is sort of an intermediate impact, but the way it's claimed is like, okay, our job is done. We've we've doled out the the money and the funding, and uh, and I was just like, well, if if that's all it took, <laughs> we wouldn't have <laughs> we you know we'd live in a different world, right? Yeah, and I think I think that also just brings up another. Another key, key, key thing, which is we also don't give, the, just the way we don't give nonprofits the space and the, the credit to, to actually own their knowledge, to get rewarded for it, uh, to have a bit more freedom and agency in how they manage funds. I think the same happens with funders, in, but in a different way. So I think there the problem is we still see funding and philanthropy as a transactional, one-way transaction of just like money goes one way. Right. But it's not. It's like, why do people give? They give because they need more meaning in their life. They give because they care. They want to find something that they can do and find purpose and use their resources and their skills in a way that helps. And we don't also give funders always a space. Say, you know what? I'm not just doing this for the beneficiaries or for the nonprofit. I'm doing this because I want to have meaning in my life. And that's okay. And I think also that conversation is never had, which again makes it very difficult. Like when funders, funders are thought they have to come up with all these criteria to assess different organizations. And they're not often given the space to say, well, because I like it, because I'm interested in it, because it's my passion. Right. Right. They also have to post rationalize because the sector has pushed both to do these extreme things. And instead, actually, I want to see relationships, and I do see them, where there's no us and them. It's like, no, we're, we're a team because we want the same thing. And so the funding and the terms of contracts and the duration of contracts and the way you deal with change are a perfect fit because you're on the same team. You're working towards the same destination. You've agreed to that destination. And so when you, when you ask for a change, the funder says, yeah, sure, I can see how you need that change. Sure, I'll give you more money. Or you're, the funder is with you assessing. Right, and the and what you want really is is the is the it's a sort of three three elements to it. You want you need the obviously the the board to understand that in between the the f- sources of funding and the programming, there you have to have this alignment about what it is you're trying to achieve, and that again that sort of uh, that that impact because you need to get the results, and if you if you if you pull the programming off in different directions. 
you're always going to dilute the results uh, because there isn't that focus, that singular focus on 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 running that operation well. I mean, every, any any service, any operation, any programming still takes work and effort to uh, to be successful. It doesn't. You don't get results by accident. No, and also you want to know how to how to evaluate those results. Like if you don't have a definition of what success looks like, how on earth at the end of the year are you going to be able to say, okay, this was pretty good. Or this was this was great. This I need to learn from. Okay, so have we have we covered the the the, the full cycle, or are we missing pieces yet? No, I think we've covered it, uh, and I think that just the final point on that is really that what we want to aim towards. We want to aim towards this balanced relationship, and the balanced relationship takes a little bit of forward thinking in terms of what decisions are going to serve me and my organization today, which ones are going to serve me in the long term, and how far, how much am I willing to compromise in terms of my mission dilution when I make these decisions? Right. Okay. So that's really good advice. What would you tell um, an executive director of a nonprofit about some, perhaps some danger signs to look out for as, as hopefully we move to some sort of normalization later in, in 2021? I imagine a lot of people are going to be blowing dust off their old strategic plans and thinking, Okay, let's fire up the strategic planning cycle. What what is this going to look like? What what would you be advising EDs to prepare for that? Uh, perhaps I mentioned some warning signs that they could look for, then and then maybe try and avoid um, those pitfalls. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of warning signs, um, I think it's just the symptoms that a lot of nonprofits see, but it's asking yourselves why are those symptoms happening. So the symptoms could be your your staff is just so strained that they just can't think straight. Uh, like they're working too much. That's pretty universal now. It's universal, but that can be again. <laughs> that can be that can be changed. Like if you understand why it's happening, I've seen many nonprofits go from running around like <laughs> like crazy people, and I've done that also in in project teams um, to say, okay, actually, there's only taught hours in the day. There's we have to prioritize. It's not going to help us to stress. So I think even if during COVID, strain can be reduced if you understand why it's happening. Another. Uh, another challenge to look for is just your the resilience of your funding so are you reaching the stage where actually you only rely on one or two funders or on one or two income streams because you really want to diversify that so if you're reaching the stage where actually you have less and less variety in your income streams that's another warning flag because that means you're vulnerable and you need to start thinking okay what can i do today within my hours in the day that will start building a pipeline of opportunities for me. Um, another one is feedback from funders. So I know that's really hard to get and I get really annoyed and I'm a big advocate for funders giving more feedback, mm-hmm. but um, you wanna know what you're doing right and wrong. And sometimes you need that external perspective. So any feedback, anybody, like if somebody says, I'm not gonna give you funding, ask them. Like look out for feedback. Um, and also, uh, and this is part of your quality control anyways, but feedback from the ground. So feedback from people that you're helping because they, the way they see and experience the work. Right. So yeah, yeah. I, but I just want to do it on the feedback that as a, as a, as a takeaway for um, executive directors is the, is even when you are doing well, getting feedback from your funders, the the foundations and so on about, uh, and I'm thinking specifically around grants about what's working well and what isn't. And uh, if you're not a problem organization, you might have a program manager, a program officer from the 
foundation say, oh, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. We don't worry about you. But that's, but, but your recommendation might be to uh, go back and ask for, now, I know, I guess we're not a problem, but still, can you tell us what we could do better, what we're doing well, what we need to uh, make sure that we keep doing, just so you have that confirmation? Yeah. I mean, I, I do that regularly. I email my clients and my collaborators and people I volunteer for. And I say, Hey, it's been a while. Tell me like, what did you like? What did you not? What can I improve on? Because everybody can improve. So I think that's a big one, but in terms of what else you can actually do in 2020. Now, I know that if you're, I think there's a, there's a difference between organizations that have actually been able to pivot and are able to continue their activities despite COVID and ones that just, physically cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you physically cannot and you've had to put a, a stop on some things, then obviously that situation is different. But if you can continue your activities, my message would be don't let COVID slow down your hopes or your fundraising. Like go ahead and plan. Like there there's there are businesses and organizations Yeah, don't stop fundraising at all. No, there's there's organizations that are thriving. Uh, one of my clients had a great winter recently. They got more funding than they got the year before and they've got abundant opportunities. Me and my business, I'm still planning ahead. I'm mitigating the risk, but I'm still planning ahead. So don't let COVID be an excuse for not taking consistent action towards your goals. And if instead you've had to slow down, use that thinking time. Use that to reflect and look back on your work uh, and say, okay, what, what worked in the past few years? What didn't? What can, I, what can I align? What do I want to do next when I have the opportunity to start? And I think a lot of organizations out there are doing that. Yeah, that's great advice. What, um, as we draw to a close, uh, Ada, tell me what sort of training and programs uh, and consulting that you do, and and then we'll round up with people how to get in touch with you again. Yeah, so um, so I work with organizations in a number of ways, but at the moment, my main focus and the way I've decided that uh, will benefit the most number of people possible, which is my goal. Um, is I've launched a new training program. Okay. So I've uh, pretty much distilled everything that I've been listening, observing, using, uh, testing out with clients, mistakes I've made into a pretty digestible, practical, step-by-step training program. Um, and the goal of that is, again, it's focused on solving those three areas that are a little bit tricky to get out of that cycle. So how do you how do you figure out, I'm not going to point that finger, how do you figure out um, what uh, bias, like why your funders are not reacting the way you want them to? Like what information is missing that you need to get across and what are their beliefs? Mm-hmm. What is that impact narrative that really makes sense for your organization that includes your short, your long-term, it has a map of everything and it, um, it really resonates true to your goals? And then what rules of the game can you start implementing and taking decisions on to make sure that your internal decisions and your external decisions are as streamlined, peaceful, pleasant, <laughs> and pacific as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what the training focuses on. Um, and uh, yeah, so if, if it's something that sounds like it's, it's up your street, then please just reach out and have a chat. You can see if it's a good fit. If it's not, I can hopefully advise some other resources. Um, so that's the main focus for me this year. And then I'm also on, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook. And where do people find you online? So LinkedIn, Facebook, and I've got a website, which is www.theconfluencers.com. And I share a lot of blogs and videos and stuff there. So yeah, please reach out with questions, with ideas, feedback, whatever you want. That's great. Thank you so much. No, thank you for the opportunity.
Well, this has been episode 25 of the Nonprofit Problem Solver uh, with Anna Bruni Sabini. And we've been speaking about um, trying to get clarity on your mission and speaking to fundraisers and getting feedback. And so thank you to Anna. Um, and um, if you uh, want to catch up on all the episodes of Nonprofit Problem Solver, they are available wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you. I will see you next Wednesday at the same time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Kev, for having me. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. My guest was Anna Brunisabeni. You can find her on LinkedIn or on her website at theconfluencers.com. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results.